welcome to the sages among us. Our county is abundant with people who devote countless hours and immense energy to making their community work better. The Center for Nonprofit Leadership of the Sierras sponsored groundbreaking research into who these people are, why they generously provide so much positive leadership to the greater good, and how their efforts make a positive difference for all of us. This research project culminated in a book in 2012 called The Sages Among Us, Harnessing the Power of Civic Engagement. This show celebrates these amazing individuals. I'm host, Mary Weaver, and today we're going to hear the personal story of one of our own, so to speak, retiring blues broadcaster, Richard Tews. Hello, Richard. Hi, Mary. So nice to have you here. Welcome to the Sages Among Us. Um, really nice to be here. An honor to be here. Oh. Uh, Richard Tews was born and raised in the Midwest, and his family moved south, in fact, to Panama, and then finally to Southern California. Richard studied accounting but earned a degree in philosophy from San Francisco State. He held a variety of different jobs throughout his life, from bookkeeper to San Francisco bus driver to trail guide in Machu Picchu, Peru, and more. Richard has been co-hosting So Many Roads, a popular blues show on KVMR for 37 years. Richard, before you turn in your KVMR badge, uh, we are looking forward to this opportunity to talk um, something other than music with you, but about the twists and turns of your life. So, Richard, tell us about your early life. You grew up and were born in East Chicago, Indiana. What was that like? Well, I don't remember my birth. (laughs) 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 Um, I I was told I was born in the same hospital that my mother was born in. And uh, I grew up near there, a town called Munster, but I had lived in Gary, uh, Gary Hammond, East Chicago and Munster, kind of in in that order, and Mun- Munster at the time was a, a basically a, a almost a farm town, just starting to become a suburb. In fact, I, we were driving through a, a few years ago, and it's a blazing kind of upper middle class suburb now. And then there were it was you know a street of funky old houses and farmland on all around us, and. Uh, we had probably one of the nicer houses. My dad did a lot of remodeling on it. Uh, my father hated winters. He grew up in Wisconsin, and he, he got to the point where if he couldn't get out of the driveway without shoveling snow, he didn't go to work. And uh, I don't know how he found this opportunity to go to work in Panama, but he did. He applied for it and got the job being uh, his job actually down in Panama was to do a um, well, a, a determination of of all of the uh, property that the canal owned and put a value on it, uh, an audit. And, so, uh, so, um, so East Chicago, Indiana, is is that really kind of like a suburb of Chicago, Illinois, and both yeah, kind of wrapping right around Lake yeah. Michigan? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's right. You know. Cross, you know, it's like crossing the border, but it's, you know, uh-huh. that's, 
you know, part part of the Chicago region, no, no doubt. So, what was your family unit like? Um, your mom, did you have siblings? And uh, I have a sister three years younger than me, uh-huh. and uh, you know, parents. Yeah. And uh, I st- still have a sister, fortunately. Yeah. And did both of your parents work? Uh, my mother went to work uh, when I was. Uh, well, approaching high school, when, when we were old enough to kind of deal with it, she actually got a job at uh, another local high school in the, in the library, worked as a, uh, you know, well, a librarian in the high school. Uh-huh. And, and then later when we moved, or they moved to uh, Orange County, she got a job in a local library there doing the same thing. She didn't have a degree in it. Uh, she was always bitter about that. She had a, a, a brother and a sister, and uh, her family stuck all of their money into educating the brother, who became a medical doctor, but didn't give a nickel to uh, either of their daughters to, to go to school. So she, I think after a couple of years, she had to drop out. She just couldn't afford it anymore. <clears throat> but she had met my father there, and when he graduated, he came uh, followed her to East Chicago, and they, they got married and stayed in that region. So do you have any good memories of that area, would you say? Hmm? Do you have any good memories of that area? Oh, sure. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, I nice friends, good good people, uh, had uh, great pets, and, and, and it was open, you know, so we could, you know, romp through the... Uh, open land and uh yeah it was it was a nice at that time it was a nice place to grow up um and then from there you moved to panama um yeah again that was my father's incentive because he hated (laughs) i don't know how he came across the opportunity but he he hated winters and he said i got this job opportunity we're going and uh we did and packed up and uh, drove to new york um they loaded all of us, including our car, on, onto a boat. It was a, kind of a, a theoretically a, a, a cargo ship, but it looked like a regular boat. You know, they had uh, certain, you know, for about 30 or 40 passengers, and they were good, nice setting, you know, nice accommodations. I loved it. We did two, two round trips on that, one going and coming at the end, and one about halfway through my father, a little over halfway through, my father had finished his audit and had a carton, you know, six by six by six carton of documents. And we accompanied him up to New York and he took that carton to deliver it to uh, wherever he had to deliver it to of all the, uh, you know, the accounting things. And uh, he stayed several weeks we stayed about a week and came back on an, on the next ship down but uh anyway uh so he went to work in panama and it was a government position having to do with the uh, panama canal uh panama canal company was a government agency at that time the u.s controlled government agency uh, the u.s no longer controls the panama canal uh, in fact erica and i were there at the time that the U.S. turned the Panama Canal operations over to the Panamanians and actually walked with the Panamanians from Panama City to into Balboa 
the you know their symbolic claiming of the territory. So you returned we, with your wife yeah. many years later. Yeah. To oh, celebrate that. Yeah. Well, we just happened to be passing through. We were on our uh, low budget uh, trip. You know, uh, Class B buses and Class B hotels, and uh, we went as far as southern Bolivia. And I kind of timed it in a way. It just happened to be convenient. It was a coincidence, but I timed it to hit Panama so that I could experience that since, you know, it was a youthful experience of mine. <laughs> so we were the only gringos to walk with the Panamanians. As I remember, most of the uh, I call them gringos. I don't. They didn't call themselves gringos at that point. It was, you know, that's a Mexican term. But um, all of the Americans were back, hidden with their uh, shades folded behind locked doors because they were afraid of a riot or something like that. And there's, you know, no element of that happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, we and you know we were treated basically. We were ignored. Uh, you know, they, we were tolerated but ignored. Uh, that, you know, it wasn't our celebration, it was theirs. But uh, it, it was a remarkable thing to see. So let's uh, back up to when you were a child, a wide-eyed child on, on that ship going down to Panama with your family and all of your possessions loaded in your car in the ship. And you were 10 at the time. Yeah. And your dad had a government job. So tell me what your school was like. And uh, did you quickly pick up the language or did you study Spanish before? Or uh... Uh, No, I didn't study Spanish before. And the Panama Canal, Canal Zone was controlled by Americans. So, And even in Panama City, uh, which was our closest main thing to, to, to Panama, uh, you could get, get by with no Spanish. I studied Spanish down there, and uh, but I, I've, I, it's always been hard for me. I picked it up later, later in life, because I went, spent more time in uh, Central and South America later, and uh, studied, studied Spanish a little bit more and got fairly more functional. I wouldn't say fluent, but I was functional in Spanish. So, did you experience culture shock, or were you pretty isolated from the Panamanians? Uh, well, no, I don't know. I, I, I just kind of rode with it. Uh, I, I don't know how, you know, Panamanians were, Panamanians, they were, you know, nice folk. And uh, the Panama City is probably one of the more international cities I've ever seen. It's people from, I guess it's the because of the nature of the canal itself, but... Uh, people from Asia and all over Europe are are there, and uh, you know, shopkeepers in Panama City uh, were, uh, to a large degree, not Panamanian. They might have been Indian or uh, you know, European of some sort. A lot of shopkeepers, and what drew those folks there, I don't know. But it was, uh, Panama City is just a very, very international city. I like it. Remarkable place. So uh, do you have any good stories um, being in Panama? Did anything happen that you will remember all your life or that you tell people? Uh, well, that's a good question. I had a couple of horses when I was there. And, uh, you know, I remember that. I, I remember 
uh, the, my, the second horse I had and the one I really loved, uh, would, you know, we, we got to be great friends. He, uh, he, he was a gelding, but we, you know, we went everywhere together and he was just a wonderful horse. And saying goodbye to that horse was probably the hardest, <laughs> hardest thing that I uh, experienced when, you know, when we left. I remember we, you know, sold him and, he, and the people that came picked him up. And uh, I just, you know, stood there and cried for a long time. Oh, especially at your age, you yeah. know, yeah. 12 years old or? Yeah, I was 12, 12 and a half, something like that. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I knew, you know, when we came back to the States... I knew I wasn't going to have another horse. It was a whole different economy for uh, you know to have a horse in this country. And though we eventually moved to an area where it was possible, I just didn't want to deal with it. I I had my horse, and that was it. And I you know kind of I don't I don't regret any of that. I still. Uh, so were you riding the horse on the beach, or was it mostly up into the? It was most country. It was mostly, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, on the edge of the jungle. Uh You know, we lived basically on the edge of the jungle. And uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, and I carved a trail back in and built a, you know, little fort-like area. And uh, I remember taking our parents back in there, and they they thought, well, this is kind of strange. But uh, it was... uh, that had a it had a natural swing, a vine that probably went up it, a circle, you know, like hundred feet or so. It was just there, and it turned. You know, we could make a little swing out of it, or a, or a huge swing, whatever you want. And uh, I, uh, boy, I get off track. So you'll just have to keep me going and put me back on track. Oh, so your so your friend had a horse too. Oh yeah, yeah. So it sounds so exotic, you know, to, to um, be living in the jungle in a foreign country as a little 10-year-old. Oh, um, it was, yeah. It was amazing because, you know, I, when I came back to this, when we came back to the States and to the neighborhood where we had lived in Indiana, I, uh, you know, made connection with my old friends. There were like three of them, really nice guys. But I remember thinking... My God, these guys are boring, because in in the sense that I've changed a whole lot in these two years, and these guys haven't changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you did return to the states, and did you go directly to Southern California then on the next job, or did you go back to Indiana? Uh, we well, we yeah, we went back to Indiana, and uh, I think we you know I remember d- driving the old fifty six no fifty four Mercury. Um, that we had taken to Panama, driving it down the street. And I think we all, I, I mean, I had the feeling, and I'm pretty sure my parents did, we didn't really actually verbalize it was, I don't want to live here anymore. And so my father, uh, we, we have a, a, my mother's sister and her family lived in Southern California. And uh, and we'd been there once, you know, when I was five years old. We visited, we went, by, went out by train. And... Uh, that, you know, my parents, I think, had, a, had had an eye on moving down there. So my father got on a plane, went out there, found a job pretty quickly, came back. This was the summer of 
1956, and we uh, packed up and drove west on the old Route 66. Every time I hear that song, I relive that trip. It was oh, great. my gosh, another great memory yeah, yeah, in an was, old car. Yeah, it was, you know, pre-freeways. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we migrated on Route 66 out to California and uh, got to California, you know, late in September, well after school started. And uh, I had a tough time as a kid then. So I got into the school. He didn't know anybody, you know, three weeks late. And then, then we kind of moved from an apartment to the place where we, uh, you know, the house that they bought where I, I, I would live for the rest of, you know, while I was living with them. And it was a different school district and went through the same thing, having to basically fight my way into school. I'm not a, a fighter, you know. So, uh, but, you know, you achieve your social status by who you can beat up. It was a weird time in Southern California at that time. But Yeah. So uh, you're listening to The Sages Among Us. I'm the host, Mary Weaver, and my guest today is Richard Tews. He t- telling boring stories. He is a longtime broadcaster here on KVMR. He has decided to hang it up, and so we brought him into the studio to have, us tell, uh, have him tell us about his life, which so far has been very fascinating. So, Richard, you went to Southern California, um, L.A., or one of the suburbs there, and you graduated from high school, and that was probably an exposure to rock and roll and, you know, some of your early music. Uh, absolutely. I got back from uh, Panama in 1956. Panama was way behind the times in terms of movies, music, and all of that. We'd get it six months to a year after it hit the States at that at that point. So I, I came back and there was Elvis Presley doing Don't you know, Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog, the uh, big big mama Thornton tune. And uh And so, LA wow. and LA was the and epicenter I'm, I'm going, too. Wow, what's this? This is cool stuff. And so I did get into that Chuck Berry uh, you know, st- uh, still a f- still a fan of those guys, <laughs> at least their earlier work, and uh, so yeah, that that was uh, you know an eye opener for me at that time. So you graduated from high school and and started uh, into college in Southern Cal, and then y- yeah, I went to Long Beach State for a year and a half, and then I transferred up to San Francisco State, and uh, sw- uh, somewhere along the line. You know, I was an accounting major, which is what my father was, an accountant. And uh, I had taken a logic class at Long Beach State, and then at San Francisco State, I took a philosophy of science class. And I, hmm, this was interesting. And then I took an ethics class. And then I said, well, maybe I ought to get a minor in this. And I you know, got into it more, and I said, well, maybe I ought to just get a major in this to get a minor in, in business. And so ultimately, well, I, you know, I did graduate in philosophy. I did not bother to apply for my minor in philosophy. And then I did uh, graduate work at, at San Francisco State for a, a couple of years, almost two and a half years. Half the time I was involved in uh, anti-Vietnam War and anti-racist uh, organizing activity, um, and and you were in San Francisco in the early '60s, 
kind of watching watching uh, everything happen there. Oh yeah, I lived in the Hate. I moved to the Hate when I first came up there in '63, and I lived there till '60 through the fall of '66. And uh, I know recently, a couple of years ago, they had this thing, 50th anniversary of the so-called Summer of Love. And they put that at, as at 67, but 67 was ruined uh, by that time. 66, if they want to name a uh, Summer of Love, it had to be 66, where it was still organic and blossoming and stuff. 67 is where all the pretenders and wannabes and dr- hard drugs came in from around the country. But, so uh, it must have felt like an invasion, kind of, to your neighborhood. Yeah, I, I moved from there. I went. I moved to the mission in the fall of '66 because I could see it happen. But um, one of my memories was, uh, although we never really got to know each other, I was a neighbor of Janis Joplin, and we would see each other on the street, and we got to be, you know, nodding acquaintances. And I'd go watch her band practice down on a panhandle, which I could hear from my studio apartment, but then I'd go down and hang out and listen to them practice. And I, I admired her a lot for her her talent, her, her ability. Wow. And uh, she's, from what I can gather, was, was a very nice person. And just, you know, she, I guess, got in, uh, into pressure she couldn't handle, and it's had a tragic end. Yeah, yeah. So you've had a lot of different work experience um, teaching symbolic logic to deaf teenagers. Yeah. Did that the summer of 66. Um, a friend of mine, well, it's a long story, a friend of mine was a roommate. Uh, he, he went to Berkeley, and he had a roommate who was teacher at the California School for the Deaf and Blind. Mm-hmm. And he, this gentleman, um, was really upset in that he felt the deaf kids were being kind of warehoused and not being treated correctly intellectually. So he hired a bunch of uh, college graduate students to to teach, you know, their subjects. And uh, I I got, you know, I I, I taught logic because I was a friend of, you know, a friend of his who also taught there. He taught math and uh, maybe physics. Uh, which is what he, you know, he was. He's got a PhD in one or the other of them, <clears throat> and uh, so they, you know, I got hired to teach symbolic logic, and that was a real challenge. So I, you uh, had to teach. You had to learn sign language first. Well, that's a good. Th- this guy uh, interpreted. Felt, hmm? Was he an interpreter? No. Oh. He he. Uh, th- this guy felt that. Deaf people, in order to survive in a hearing world, need to lip read. They need to l- oh. learn how to lip read. So, for the most part, it was done that. I, I didn't. I may have learned a few signs, but I, I did learn how to fingerspell. Uh, I forgot all of that now, but I could, you know, use, use my hands to spell out words. And so, what I would do is, you know, talking and trying. I sh- had to shave off my mustache so I could get, you know, you get an expressive mouth for him. Okay. And uh, I would often spell at least the first letter of the word I was trying to do uh, to give them a, you know, a help. And uh, it was a real challenge. And you've also been an assistant copy editor at Psychology Today magazine. I, I was for a while, for a year. 
And that's, you know, I stumbled into that one too. My sister, uh, she went to college in, at San Diego State. And in the summer, she worked as uh, kind of a, 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 clerical, a clerical position at, at Psychology Today. And they liked her, and when she graduated, they hired her as assistant copy editor. And she uh, got pregnant with her first kid. And, uh, oh, actually, before that, she had linked me up with a textbook publishing company that was owned by the same company as Psychology Today. And I uh, copy edited a, a couple of... Uh, textbooks for them, uh, you know, college-level textbooks, and one in sociology, one in psychology. And uh, they liked what I did, and they were going to hire me on permanently. And then all of a sudden they were sold and moved back to North Carolina. But then uh, Carol quit work at uh, Psychology Today to have her kid and recommended me, and they hired, they, they took me on. And they always figured Carol would be back. They really loved her, but uh, she had no intention of doing that. And I would have stayed. I loved, that was probably my favorite job I ever had. Mm-hmm. But then I don't remember the details, but they they were sold to uh, some publishing house, and that publishing house moved them to New York. And I had no intention. I could have gone back east, but... Uh, you know, I'd just come out of a city life, and I had no intention of uh, going back. So I, I didn't, I, you know, I stayed and ended up working at the uh, San Diego Department of Public Welfare, where I uh, met my wife. And somehow you ended up here in Nevada County. How did how did the two of you come up here? Well, that's that's a uh, good question too. Or maybe there were when three I, of when you. When I was when I was working at the. Uh, welfare department I figured well if I'm going to have this straight job I'm going to buy a house so I bought a house in Oceanside nice nice little house uh, 27.5 at the time and then uh, two two and a half years later when we were getting ready to travel I figured well I'll sell the house sold it for a little over $50,000 and almost doubled so I had all this money and I said well I don't want to blow it uh, and I had a friend who had just moved up to this area, so I said, well, let's go up and look around. And uh, she introduced me to a realtor. He showed me this property. And I said, well, let's buy it. I had the cash, you know, $13,000 at the time for two and a half acres. And again, with no real intention of necessarily moving here, it was just a place to stick the money so I wouldn't blow it, wouldn't be able to blow it. Oh. And uh, so when Eric and I went to... Uh, um, Peru, and and well, I don't know. That's that's a long story in itself. But decided to come back to the states, largely because we had this infant child at the time, and uh, we wanted to allow her and and her grandparents to get to know each other. So we figured, well, we'll we'll go back to the states. And that was uh, maybe not totally well thought out, but that's what we did, and. Uh, they got to know each other at least even though we lived at different ends of the state we would see each other on holidays and all of that and uh, 
Boy, I'm sorry. I'm rambling, and I, oh, it's okay. I need you to keep me on track. So you came up here, and you you actually built your own house. Yes. You, and by then, you'd earned a contractor's license. Well, I uh, subsequently, I you know, I was a total rookie. Neither Erica nor I. We had a, another a, a, a friend, Carl, who came up. He lives in Central California, and he came up, and he spent almost six months with us. Uh, blew off a relationship he had because he disappeared from the area for so long. But uh, the three of us uh, did the foundation and framing and the basic part of it. And, uh, yeah, we were all rookies. I had a neighbor at the time who was in the process of building his house, and he was a contractor. So if we had any questions, we'd walk up and talk to him, and he'd straighten us out. But uh, we did the whole thing, and I'm very proud of it. It's square, solid, you know, well built, and uh, we, you know, we did a great job. And, and subsequently to that, I did work in the building trades for a number of years, and uh, but it wasn't really my line of work. Um, well, and then you then you went to work for KVMR as our membership person and yeah. and then you became a broadcaster and yeah it's I, was been... a, I was a broadcaster first i'd been a broadcaster since 86 and uh, i think i went to work here and i don't know can't remember but it was many years after that thank you so much for uh being my guest tonight on the sages among oh, us boy, we're running out of time this we're, really went fast i know it went so fast um, uh, i hope i didn't uh, uh drag it out by telling your relatives